This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome back to our podcast series, The New Normal. My name is Jane Robertson and I'm an associate with CRS in the construction team. And joining me today, we have Michael Connor, a partner in the construction team. Um, today, we're going to discuss various challenges to adjudication enforcement proceedings and particularly the court's reluctance to interfere with adjudicators' decisions. Um, now, there are a vast number of ways by which parties have sought to challenge um, adjudicators' decisions. We are going to focus on two of the more recently reported enforcement proceedings in relation to smash and grab adjudications and severed decisions. So, Mike, do you want to start us off with smash and grab decisions? From the uh, first podcast, um, listeners might remember that uh, there was uh, the CLC guidance that came out um, on disputes and trying to resolve disputes in uh, sort of the, the, the COVID world or the new COVID world. And that actively encouraged parties to sit down and negotiate um, and try and resolve disputes amicably. I think sort of that was obviously very well intended and there I, sort of my experience is that that has been well received. But nevertheless, I think that we are, I mean, we are still seeing um, disputes come through uh, and we're acting on a number of disputes. And that's primarily because, you know, in inevitably not everyone is going to be able to resolve their, their disputes amicably. We're seeing quite a few um, smash and grab adjudications actually coming through. I think they're sort of becoming um, uh, some more, more popular in the sort of post-COVID area. And I think that's serving two, two factors, really. One, sort of employers may have become uh, you know, preoccupied with other matters and, and may well have served, failed to serve uh, payment notice or the requisite pay less notices in, in time or simply contractors um, are keen to maintain cash flow in difficult circumstances and they're more simply more willing to commence uh, smash and grab adjudications in these post-COVID times. Yes, um, well I agree there have been quite a few recent smash and grab decisions um, and in fact we've seen um, and in fact, the court reported on a recent smash and grab decision um, of Brosley London Limited and Prime Asset Management Limited. Um, without going into the details of the case, essentially Prime sought a stay of execution of a judgment enforcing an adjudicator smash and grab decision in order to allow a true value adjudication to take place in respect of the final account. And ultimately, the court declined to stay. Now, this is following a previous decision in Grove Developments and S&T, where um, the court made it clear that decisions in smash and grab adjudications will be enforced um, and that the paying party cannot start or wait for a decision under a true valuation adjudication before making the payment. And I think this just shows, one, the court's reluctance to interfere in, a, in an adjudication decision. So where smash and grab adjudications are brought and are successful, and um, the court are going to where they can enforce those decisions. Yeah, I think sort of you know, just to picking up on your point. I think you know, part part of the purpose of adjudications um, when they were brought in under the 19, 1990 Construction Act was to avoid lengthy proceedings and in order to maintain cash flow within the industry. 
And I would have thought, you know, perhaps now uh, more than ever, cash flow uh, is essential uh, to maintaining uh, the industry. And the courts continue to um, send out a clear mass message that smash and grab uh, decisions will be enforced um, in order to maintain that, that cash flow. And then, so I think basically um, best practice, obviously, is to avoid smash and grab adjudications at the risk of stating the obvious. Um, to do so, it's important to comply with any payment notice provisions set out in the contract. Um, so, for example, ensure the date for service of any payment notices aren't missed um, and that the correct mode of service is used um, and the notice is sent to the correct addressee. And I think ultimately that is the best way um, for parties to avoid any smash and grab proceedings being brought against them, especially at this time where we're seeing more and more of them. Yeah, I, I think I think that's, that's right. Although um, picking up on uh, one, one of your points about sort of making sure um, you, you don't miss the dates of service of payment notices and payless notices, there was this uh, recent case um, before the TCC of Rochford Construction and um, Kilhan Construction which considered um, final dates for payment and the basis on which you calculate them. Now, I think I'd, I'd suggest that it's probably quite common for construction contracts, um, certainly in the UK, to tie final date for payment of interim payments to the receipt of a uh, VAT invoice. And understandably, you know, I, I can understand that from, you know, normal um, accounting um, purposes that why uh, contractors employed would need that VAT invoice. However, in the um, case of Rochford, the court was of the opinion that such provisions would fall foul of the Construction Act. Um, and because you needed a definite uh, date for determining um, when the final date for payment should be made, and having it sort of floating by the um, provision of a VAT invoice may not be um, compliant with the Construction Act. If that's right, um, the, the court didn't actually have to um, decide the point, um, but it was a strong indication from the court on its views of such clauses. But if, if that is right and such clauses do fall foul of um, the Construction Act, the consequences are that the final date for payment will be replaced by the scheme provisions, which sets out that it's um, 17 days from the date uh, from the due date. And the important thing for there is that I suspect much of the construct, many of the construction contracts will allow for a far longer period of time than 17 days. So that in turn means because of the way that the pay less notices are calculated, that the, uh, there needs to be a significant adjustment to the date on which a payless notice um, should otherwise be served. And that then obviously brings in risks of smash and grab um, adjudications if parties have missed those payment notices and payless notices. So it's just a point to, to be at, um, aware of. And I'd suggest sort of a, a review of construction um, contracts um, to to consider those points. Yes, I completely agree with that. Um, 
following the recent case law. So if we move on to our second topic in relation to severing adjudication decisions. Now, the reason we dis we're discussing this, this topic in particular, again, is because there has been a recent case on it, which is Dickie and McLeish, um, which was actually heard in the Scottish courts. Um, and in summary, the adjudicator made decisions in relation to parts of the dispute, uh, which had not yet crystallised. Now, initially, the outer house concluded that such decisions could be severed from the adjudicator's decision, while still leaving the core nucleus, as they termed it, of the decision intact and um, with the ability to be safely enforced. Now, the employer challenged this on appeal. However, the inner house wholly endorsed the outer house's decision. Now, this just shows that although the referring party can um, raise challenges to the enforcement of the adjudicator's decision, the, the courts, again, are reluctant to not enforce an adjudicator's decision um, where it can be safely enforced. So to the extent that there are issues with the decision where they can be severed and the decision can be safely still enforced, the courts will seek to do so. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And it's um, just reinforcing um, the point that you uh, that you made that you know courts will strive to enforce an adjudicator's decision wherever possible, um, and the fact that there may or may not have been parts of the decision which could not be enforced, they looked at the entire sort of the decision as a whole and decided that it should be enforced. And again, that, again, that just emphasises the point that these. Uh, adjudicators' decisions, um, more often than not, will be enforced by the courts. Yes, I think essentially the um, the scope of the courts to be able to sever part of an adjudication essentially just gives them even more of an ability to enforce the decisions wherever possible, and that's the main message there. Yeah. So to to wrap up, I think sort of the the overarching message. Um, is and really always always has been that courts are reluctant to interfere in adjudicators' decisions and will generally enforce those decisions unless there is a fundamental issue with either the jurisdiction or a breach of natural justice within those adjudicators' uh, proceedings. Um, that, that I think sort of now even more so the likelihood of an adjudication um, decision being overturned is, is relatively low. That, that said, I think parties to adjudications should be, bear in mind that if there is uh, a jurisdictional challenge or they believe that there has been a breach of natural justice, um, then they should raise those issues um, as soon as possible in those proceedings. Um, they should reserve their rights as to jurisdiction um, in respect of the um, challenge and make it clear and specific as to what that objection is. Um, if they don't do so, um, then there is always an inherent um, risk, and certainly in respect of jurisdiction, that they will have um, waived their rights to raise those challenges later uh, on the enforcement uh, proceedings. Thanks, Mike. I, th I think that um, summarises the message 
that we're trying to get across in this podcast. Um, I'd just like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Please do keep an eye out for the next episode, which will be coming out soon. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 